free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project podcast, cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus, free shipping on the whole thing. Go to adamandeve.com, select the lube, the harness, the dildo of your choice, and enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, for 50% off. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. The first time I saw someone get decapitated, I kind of overreacted, because I was 20 years old at the time, and I was already at that point long in the habit of avoiding such videos, because they, they were somewhat ubiquitous on the internet, and I'd never had any interest, but when I was 17 years old, I went to traffic school, and I passed out when they showed us this movie called Red, Al Red Alert 3, which was just a montage of mutilated bodies and car wrecks, and so I realized, okay... I guess I'm I'm one of those people. I'm I'm squeamish. I can't watch this shit. But staying away from footage of like ugly, visceral shit was already something. It was a tactic that I'd already kind of cultivated at that point. And I think it was because I grew up at a time when the internet was much more of a wild west type of place. Today, for instance, if you want to watch porn in a discreet way, you just open an incognito tab on Chrome and you hop over to Pornhub or XHamster or any of these other places that are pretty much vetted where the ads aren't gonna like destroy your computer. Back then, in like 2003, 4, 5, if you wanted to discreetly watch porn, because every site was going to inundate your, your computer with pop-ups, people would know you'd been watching porn. If you wanted to do it discreetly, you, had, you generally had to go to some kind of file-sharing service, like LimeWire or Kazaa, where the porn was mixed in with just every other ungodly thing that the internet has to offer. You would type in NSFW, the acronym for Not Safe for Work, or just something along those lines, something indicating that you were looking for adult content. And then, once you'd entered it, a slew of downloadable videos would pop up, and none of them had thumbnails ever in any of these platforms. There were no images to determine, to, to at least get a sense of what you were downloading. All you were going by was the file name. And because all the people putting these videos up wanted them to be downloaded, the names were misleading. The, the names were catch-alls. Videos on Kazaa and LimeWire rarely had titles like they do on Pornhub or XHamster. Titles such as... Lesbian Freesome! Very nice! Horny Housewife Bangs the Plumber! Very nice! No, instead, every video wanted to use every keyword imaginable. So the title would be, you know, Gangbang Missionary Group Sex Blonde Latina MILF. And you just had to imagine what, what this might be. And it was always such a gamble because apart from not knowing what the fuck you were going to get, everything took like 47 hours to download. And then, almost invariably, you download the video called Gangbang Missionary Group Sex Blonde Latina MILF, and it's two men being fucked by a horse, or a bootleg recording of The Matrix Reloaded. Every now and then, however, a video would boast some coherent title, and it would be exactly what it claimed to be. And often, when you were looking for porn, there'd be some straggler file in there among the porn, and the title would simply say, Chainsaw Beheading, or Gangland Crime Scene Everyone Dead Cameraman Laughing, or Tourist Falls Into a Hot Spring Unedited. 
I remember around this time, um, Saddam Hussein's execution was one of the first big controversies of this of its nature, where it was like a violent video that millions of people were curious about seeing on the internet. And it spawned think pieces about the fact that, like, yes, a lot of people are just opening their eyes to this now, but videos of hangings were ubiquitous. So you had to be careful, and being like 13 and 14 years old when I would use these platforms, my parents had so convinced me of my delicate constitution, of my corruptibility, that I genuinely believed I would just vanish off the face of the earth if I saw footage of somebody dying. And I, I totally don't mean to make my parents sound like ridiculously protective, but you do have to bear in mind that I was like eight years old when Columbine happened, and my brother was 11. So we grew up in this environment where there was this new network of nervous parental whispering about which musicians were going to make children kill their classmates or teachers or themselves. People were freaked out that video games or Marilyn Manson or Eminem or The Matrix was going to make kids shoot up their school. And so I think it was pretty common for kids of me and my brother's generation to be told that we needed to be shielded from certain pieces of media for the good of ourselves and our classmates and society. But back to this story, if you were settling into a movie right now, there'd be a title card saying somewhere on the internet, 2011. And at this point, I'm 20 years old. I've only seen one horrific internet video, which was the public suicide of Bud Dwyer, who shot himself on TV and whose death one of my classmates in high school had somehow broadcasted on three computer screens at once during health class. Honestly, I was pretty proud of the fact that I had avoided that kind of shit and, and that I never sought it out myself, which might seem like a pretty low standard of decency for me to, you know, lean back and tuck my thumbs in my suspenders and say, I never did try to watch strangers die violently on the internet. But I had, I did have an adolescence curiosity and I would get this nervous, excited pit in my stomach every time I let my cursor hover over something that I knew I probably shouldn't be looking at quick digression, that thing of having a low standard of decency and taking pride in the fact that, as an adolescent, I never deliberately sought out footage of atrocities or murder. One of the major mentors in my life was a professor named Philip Marcus, Philip with two L's. And I should do a whole episode about him sometime in the future, but for now, I'll mention that he hated his office. It was cluttered with shit that was left over from the previous professor who had inhabited it. The walls didn't go all the way up to the ceiling so he could hear the conversation and the burping and the sneezing of his colleagues. And so instead of hosting office hours, he would have coffee hours. He would wheel his bag up to the second floor of the campus bookstore, um, where there was a little Starbucks outlet. He would get a double espresso, and he would sit there nursing this one drink for three straight hours twice a week. And any one of his students could come up and sit with him and talk about anything under the sun. Just the coolest guy. He offered to buy coffee for everyone who sat down. He loved his job. He loved his students, loved the topics that he taught. Anyway, there was some college scandal going on at one point, having to do with sexual misconduct at a frat house, something to do with the Greeks. And at some point during that whole scandal, I went to, I went to one of Professor Marcus's coffee hours on the second floor of the bookstore, and on this particular day, when I got there, there were two people talking with him already. The first was a guy named Brian, and the other one was my friend Amanda. They were talking about this sex scandal with the frat house, and the conversation kind of blew up into a more aerial view of sexual violence on campuses in general, nuances of sexual misconduct, etc., etc. And here at the table, we had Amanda and Professor Marcus, who were both pretty savvy on the topic, and we had Brian. There aren't many people in my life who I've disliked so much as I disliked Brian. He was a, he was a stocky Cuban guy, a Cuban like the rest of us, and he was in his early 30s, and he was getting his education alongside of a full-time job in sales somewhere, so he was accorded a certain degree of respect for that. But everything was a pose with him, and he tried to seem like both a character out of Scarface and a character out of Lovecraft. 
He would tell people to call him Satan. Said he was going to legally change his name to Satan as soon as he graduated. Because the name Satan, he would hasten to explain, doesn't actually have what he would call a negative definitionary meaning. The name Satan, he said, merely means, quote, bringer of the light, or something like that. He would say, when people hear the word Satan and automatically think of the devil, it only shows their ignorance. And I would say, it's not ignorant, Brian. Where else is anyone going to know that name from? There's no, there is nobody on this campus that if you said to them, hey, do you know Satan? They'd be like, which one? And then he'd go on a rant about how everybody's a sheep and they only digest the stories that, that are told to them and they never seek out to be educated by their own selves. And I would, whatever, concede so that I could try to make my point. I would say, okay, Brian, let's, let, fine, that's fine. Everyone's an idiot except you. Let's say you change your name to Satan and everyone does think that way. How do you think you're going to do in the job market when people look at your application and it says fucking Satan Rodriguez? And he scoffed at me when I asked this, and he was like, obviously, I'm not going to keep my last name. And I was like, don't say obviously to me. There's no obviously about naming yourself after the, the canonical nemesis of Jesus. And he'd look at me pityingly, and he would raise a wizened finger, and he would say, that's where individuals are mistaken, Alex. The name Satan has nothing to do with the biblical character. He, he spoke with this laborious vocabulary of, of somebody who thinks that speaking for a long time is the same thing as speaking well. Brian didn't know any people. He knew individuals. He didn't have friends. He had acquaintances and constituents. He would never say that somebody was stressed. He would say that they had succumbed to various trepidations. Anyway, we're talking about the sexual assault issue on campus, and Amanda at the time was taking a class with a professor who had recently published some highly regarded article about the use of rape in warfare. And so she at the time was pretty steeped in the material. She's talking about it. She's working herself up by rattling off statistics about sexual assault in this country versus that country, in this kind of workplace versus that kind of workplace. And meanwhile, Brian is sitting across from her, and he's squinting, and he's nodding, and he's stroking his repugnant pubic froth of a beard. And at one point, in a quick lull while Amanda is taking a sip of her drink, Brian shrugs, and he juts his chin like Don Corleone, and he says, You know, I never had any interest in raping anybody. He is so serious when he says this. And I remember Amanda choked on her coffee and her eyes turned to flames and she put her hands on the table and she leaned forward and she boomed out at him across the table. Do you want a fucking cookie, Brian? And everyone turned around and it was kind of more, it was kind of embarrassing, but it was also, it was really great because, you know, Brian kind of stopped talking for a bit. I don't know, incidentally, what ended up becoming of Brian, but I know that he said that he wanted to be a writer, and he said that he had already written several books. He said that he had written several books, but that he doesn't read books anymore because, quote, they're all the same after a certain point. And he had, he had no plan for this. Like, he had no plan about how he was going to get published. He just talked about his writing career as though he were going to get published. And he said if, if someday he ever got tired of writing, he would go into acting. Into being in movies, specifically. Well, he just saw himself as being famous. I would ask him, like, well, okay, what kind of movies do you want to be in? And he was like, eh, I don't know, what, you know, whatever comes my way. But I've given it some thought, and, like, at this point, I can pretty easily imagine him being in a movie. You know, something like... Homeless man puts penis in what should have been a meal! Very nice! I was in college and my brother's friend Joey joined us for drinks one time and he was like, oh, I just saw the most disturbing video I've ever seen in my life the other day. And normally this isn't the kind of thing that would catch my interest. But I was taking this back-to-back -back pair of classes at the time about postmodernism. The 
first one was called The Postmodern Novel, and the other one was called Deconstructive Ethics. And the second class, which was focused less on actual literature than it did on the wrist-cuttingly dense and labyrinthine essays of like Jean-Luc Nancy and Jacques Derrida. In that class, we spent a lot of time talking about the depictions of suffering. It, it was kind of a ridiculously abstract and masturbatory curriculum. At one point in the semester, we had almost an entire hour of heated class discussion about an essay by the philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy before realizing that almost half the class had been reading the wrong essay. The professor laughed about it and said, what a coincidence that the conversation should have gone on so long without anybody realizing. But it wasn't a coincidence. The essays were just gobbledygook. Let me read you an actual passage from Jean-Luc Nancy's essay, The Inoperative Community, which was one of the central texts of the class. Nancy writes the following on about page three of the essay. An inconsequential atomism, individualism tends to forget that the atom is a world. This is why the question of community is so markedly absent from the metaphysics of the subject, that is to say, from the metaphysics of the absolute for itself. Anyway, so I'm watching this decapitation on the internet because my brother's friend says it's the most wildly disturbing thing he's ever seen. What stayed with me about the video is that you don't actually see the decapitation. The video is shot from a dash cam in a car that I think is driving in Russia. The camera is facing the road ahead and you cannot see the passengers sitting immediately behind it. And the family in this car is driving at an average speed on their side of a narrow, two-way road in the middle of nowhere. At one point, a semi-truck is coming toward them in the opposite direction. The truck is moving at an equally unremarkable speed, it's staying in its lane. But then, suddenly, a brick falls from the back of the big truck. You can hardly see it as it bounces once in the road and flies through the windshield of the car from which this whole thing is being filmed. The car slows to a stop. And from the screaming inside, we come to realize, without seeing a single drop of blood, without even seeing a person, that the woman in the passenger seat has just been hit in the head with that lone brick. And her husband is beside her and her children in the back seat. And it is fucking horrible. It was so, so upsetting and resonant. But I also had this feeling like it was somehow my, it had somehow been my responsibility to look at it. You see, part of this class on deconstructive ethics was concerned with like, Let's say your neighbor is suffering somehow. Well, we all have our hardships. We don't always have the resources to step into our neighbor's life and fix their problems or even to lend them a hand. So one of the theories we examined was that it's fine for you not to go burning yourself out in order to solve all the problems of the world, but what you are morally obliged to do is to look at the suffering around you. The burden of bearing witness is how our professor would put it. I'm sure there are nuances to this position that I'm forgetting, and I was obviously taking the whole thing way too literally. Okay, you don't have to help your neighbor through his financial hardship, but every time someone gets decapitated on the internet, you gotta watch it. That being said, it did feel like a kind of tribute to the person's suffering that I did watch the video at the time. The following year, as a senior, we saw the bombings at the Boston Marathon in April. Over the next couple of weeks, I went over some of the more grisly photographs that were trickling onto the internet, and I noticed that one of the victims, who just about every newspaper had said was killed instantly, painlessly, she can be clearly seen in one particular photograph to be screaming with her ankle blown halfway off of her leg. And, and for some reason, it felt like there was something urgent and morally weighted about looking at and appreciating this person's suffering when everyone else was saying that it hadn't happened. And there was and there was something interesting about the fact that this image was being contained and, and not really shown, whereas everybody saw the image of the man who lost both of his legs in the same bombing being wheeled through the chaos while a man in a cowboy hat runs alongside of his wheelchair and kind of pin holds his femoral artery shut. But the photos and the videos from the aftermath of the Boston bombing weren't the only things that were inundating my, my newsfeed on Facebook. These final months of college also saw a flood of images in my feed from the civil war in Syria. 
Footage that was deliberately grisly and unedited because people were angry with the lack of American news coverage and with Obama's lack of action. And so there, on my phone, in the middle of the day, was footage of, like, a soot-covered man ambling out of a bombed building, totally white with dust from head to toe, and then slowly turning red as all of his wounds begin to open. And then, of course, there were the ubiquitous images of the victims of chemical warfare. In the years since then, I haven't willingly looked at virtually anything, any footage or photos of tragic shit that's happened to people, you know, car accidents or shootings or people jumping from buildings. Mostly I avoid that stuff because I just can't stomach it anymore. I get either physically nauseous and dizzy, or I get some kind of emotional hangover. In William T. Volman's book, Rising Up and Rising Down, he cites this quote from the diary of a woman living in Stalinist Russia. She says, the nausea rises in my throat when I hear how calmly people can say it. He was shot. Someone else was shot. 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 The word is almost always in the air. It resonates through the air. People pronounce the words perfectly calmly as though they were saying he went to the theater. I think that the real meaning of the word doesn't reach our consciousness. All we hear is the sound. We don't have a mental image of those people actually dying under bullets. And that passage from that woman's diary, I think, perfectly encapsulates kind of something about the urgency with which I sort of consumed all of this footage... But when I think about it now, years later, I wonder, like, if I were to really stop and contemplate the suffering of every misfortune, particularly even just gun violence, all of the gun violence that I hear about in a given day or week, if you're doing that, can you still find the time to sort of live and enjoy your own life? And I do still wonder sometimes about the extent to which I ought to mourn the misfortunes that I hear about on the news. By and large, though, as I said, I'm, I'm way more relaxed about it now, and also way less judgmental of the people who want nothing to do with any kind of news, be it morbid, uplifting, whatever, because obviously you can tell by the way I was describing that postmodernism class, this morbid curiosity of mine was obviously glossed with a certain degree of pretension, where I was taking pride in, like, the fact that my nerves were being hardened and I, I was seeing life for what it really is. I've got a, a friend who is fetishistically political and who tweets shit every day about how if you aren't politically involved, it's a sign of your moral vacuity or a poverty of compassion. He, he boasts a very floral kind of contempt. And he makes his points about how it's the responsibility of a good citizen to pay attention to what's happening in their world. And of course I agree with that to some extent, but like, do I think that an overworked, underpaid social worker is somehow a bad person because he comes home from working his caseload and chooses to watch a sitcom instead of CNN? I think it's excessive to even expect any kind of political savviness from like, the custodian who works 55 hours a week between two different jobs on opposite sides of town, or the adjunct professor who spends 20 hours a week in her car because she's got to shuttle across five different campuses in order to make ends meet, or the grad student who's also a parent, or the guy who owns a 24-hour laundromat, or the woman with a fucked up knee who nonetheless has to spend 10-hour shifts on her feet, which incidentally is the situation of every restaurant manager over the age of 50. Now, I mean, if you were to say, should these people be politically savvy and aware of all the shit that's going on in the world? Sure. Is it fucked up and immoral of them to keep their head down and just try to get through life, hopscotching from one bill to the next, eating as well as they can and trying to play with their kid and squeeze in a workout and make it to work on time and tend to their ailing parents? I mean, obviously, no, it's not immoral. That You know, life gets in the way. I'm also wondering more and more about how heavy that burden of bearing witness should be. How much should you read? How much should you politic? How much should you listen and preach and fight alongside people before you can rightly say, all right, for the next two weeks, I'm just going to stay home and allow myself a bacchanal of sex and weed and cereal and cartoons. It's kind of touchy, though, and this whole thing is kind of morbid, but it brings us to the meat and potatoes of this episode, which comprise, once again, a truncated but still lengthy conversation with the book critic, YouTuber, Bostonian stegosaurus, Steve Donahue. 
I was going through the New Yorker today, I was thinking about the internet tall grass when it comes to like atrocities. I like the most sinister example I had of it recently was after the Las Vegas shootings. There was the leaked photos from inside his hotel room, the shooter's hotel room, and there were sh photos of the shooter dead and the gunshot and stuff. When you stumble across those kinds of things, footage of atrocities, photos, do you, do you feel compelled to explore them just to get a more comprehensive sense of what happened? Absolutely. Do you seek them out yeah. or just if you stumble upon them? Usually you stumble upon them. I usually, it's usually not to seek them out unless there's going to be a narrative. So, for instance, with the Las Vegas shootings, there would, uh, there would be no narrative at all. It, we know exactly what happened, and it's very cut and dry. It's very straightforward. There are only about four people in the world who think it was a false flag or anything like that. But there are other things. But plane crashes, for instance. Uh, the, the, a plane from one nation that crashes on the soil of another nation is inherently suspicious. So something like that. I would want to look at it. I would want to dig into it just to make sure that I'm ready. Not because I think that anything is untrue, but just because I want to see it right away. Because despite what people say about the internet never forgetting, stuff gets airbrushed out of, off the internet all the time. It's possible. To ha that is possible to happen. And I don't like that at all. I especially don't like that the, the, the awesome responsibility of that is in the hands of a private corporation. But nevertheless, it is. <laughs> so I, and so a lot in some of those cases, the only time you're going to get that is going to be right at the beginning. So I, I do that. that. Those are the ones that I seek out. The internet, YouTube, is home to, I'm just assuming that you don't know, it is home to just a blizzard of atrocities, just a blizzard of them. The things we, people, you know, vaguely alt-right, YouTubers who are in their channels cut taken down for political reasons, they make all the noise and they make the headlines and they are the smallest tip of the iceberg of the stuff you can find on YouTube, just the smallest. And BitChute as well and other places like that. If you go looking for atrocities, you'll find things a lot worse than, than mass shootings. You'll find willful, satanic depravity, just a film with people chuckling the whole time. <laughs> that's a, that's, I try not to seek that stuff out either. Do you remember what was the first major news item where the internet seemed to provide you that kind of backdoor glimpse into the like something grittier than the news? Was it 9-11? Yeah, it was 9-11. It was, for me, it was, most, it, was, it was mostly 9-11 to start with, yeah. Because at the beginning, there was a whole bunch of stuff on 9-11 that was available on YouTube. And then they YouTube just purged its roles so a lot of the videos that you could have seen aren't there anymore and some of the stuff some of the actual raw primary source data isn't there anymore it's very hard for instance to to find uh the the iconic example of this is that it's very hard to find video footage of jumpers of 9-11 jumpers that's very hard to do. It's very hard to find footage of that. The famous, the iconic falling man, who was the subject of an essay in The New Yorker. That footage is hard to find because YouTube has just scrubbed it. They think it's disrespectful or not advertiser friendly or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is, I guess. But the thing is, the scary thing is that if you don't find it on YouTube, where are you going to find it? You can go online or to the dark web and you can order bootleg VHS copies of stuff that was 
rushed to production the week of 9-11 that has all that stuff and just hasn't been physically found and reclaimed, but you can't find anything else. That's that's disturbing to me. <laughs> so, so I look up that sort of stuff, even though it's with no enjoyment. Sorry. I, my, once again, my dog is going nuts. I want yeah, you to cut fine. it out. I want you to cut it out. Just settle down. It's another person's voice. That's all. I thought um, she'd come easily. She was exhausted at the end of our long walk today. Exhausted. What is it? What is a long walk for you guys? A mile, two? An hour. An hour. Okay. Yeah, we cover a lot of ground. We're out. We're out for a long time. Uh, today we covered less time than usual because it was uh, warm. And I thought that would mean that it would be a really long walk, but I keep forgetting this dog overheats. She overheats like crazy. <laughs> don't, worse than any dog I've ever had. So I don't know if that's worse with age. Oh, I don't remember her being this bad last year, but maybe I, maybe she was. There you go. That's exactly what I want you to do. Good girl. It feels like it's been 15 years since it was warm here. It really does. I was watching a documentary on YouTube earlier today about the different planets in Earth's solar system and what their weather is like. And when the narrator got to uh, Mercury and Venus and started talking about how incredibly hot it is, hot enough to melt zinc, I was sitting there watching the screen saying, oh, 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 oh that <laughs> sounds so good. The narrator's he's breathlessly, he's breathlessly saying, you wouldn't live for even a minute. And I'm actually thinking, well, would I trade that? But I have I these did. conflicting interests, uh, as I imagine most people kind of equate the two, the mysteries of the ocean and the mysteries of the heavens, etc. But that UFO thing kind of paired up in my mind with your coverage of that new university press book about the sea life that exists in these impossible circumstances down in the bowels of the earth. Yeah, what, extremophiles. Whenever, what are they? Extremophiles? Extremophiles, that's what they yeah, are. What? When, when people say like, okay, we, we know as much about the ocean as we do about outer space, I, I never really know how to like how to make sense of that statement. Are they saying that there's yeah, more that life? statement is blatantly on false. It's blatantly false. That is obviously okay. not true. Obviously, since what what do we know about Neptune's moon Triton, which is composed of water, frozen water? What do we know about Triton? We know its name, and we know it's spherical, and we know that it's buddies with Neptune, and that's about it. We don't know anything else. Nothing at all about it. Nothing about how it formed. Nothing about what it looks like. Nothing about its insides. Nothing about what lives under the crust or doesn't. Nothing at all about it. We know a lot about the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> so that, that, that's a neat thing for my fellow journalists to say, but it's dumb. It's just completely wrong. But still, it's fascinating. Extremophiles don't have any connection with the sun. <laughs> Just think about that for a minute. Yeah, it sounds like Bostonians. <laughs> they don't have any connection with photosynthesis in any way. They evolved in a world that does not know sunlight and that knows no byproducts of sunlight. It's all geothermal. It's incredible. Just incredible. And if that can happen here, it can happen somewhere else. The, the one thing that that exobiologists would always say was a limiting factor was sunlight, heat, warmth. But if you don't need that, then who knows? <laughs> who knows? What, what is it? What is an exobiologist? Uh, uh, someone who studies alien worlds. Oh, they've had to, they've had to change their tune quite a bit 
the more we learn about Earth's extremophiles. There, there's an, an, ex, an extremophile. There isn't a one of those, you know, bottom of the sea creatures. There isn't one of those things that would probably die instantly if you put it in the under the crust ocean of Europa, the moon Europa. We know it probably has surging sub-crust oceans, probably of very cold water. <laughs> the, the, the surface of, the, of that moon is bombarded by rocks and dust and debris from, from the asteroid belt all the time. What if those things over time have constituted nutrients? Okay, well, then that means you've got water and you've got nutrients, but no heat and no sunlight. We have things on Earth that live under those conditions. It's, it's, it's so incredible to think that you could take some of those things and put them there right now without adapting them in any way. No spacesuits, no tiny microscopic spacesuits, just, just them the way they are and that they might live and breathe. That is just incredible. <laughs> it's just amazing to me. My roommate has was just watching something about um, uh, the Voyager thing. The Carl, it was Carl Sagan who pioneered that, right? And the, cap, oh the capsule is, yeah, and it's supposed to sort of distill human culture into a few select items. And I was telling him sort of the breakdown of what you were talking about in one of your recent videos, where you were talking about a recent book, which was saying that might not have been wise. Uh, this this broadcast of who That's we are, true. where we are, what we do. I've read a few books that say that, that that might be a bad idea. I'd never heard that sentiment. Not because we would get hostile aliens to visit. This has nothing to do with this weird footage that has, that has come to light. But because the, the preferred method of choice for maybe space-competent, technologically superior civilizations would be the release of drones, basically that would do their planet sterilizing for them. It wouldn't be that they would come here and have a plank that goes down and then they come down there <laughs> and say, we've had enough of you. It wouldn't be that. That's very expensive. But making a drone that makes other drones, it's a wonder that hasn't happened already. Unless the universe is devoid of life. If, that, if the universe is devoid of life, that would explain why that hasn't happened already. <laughs> we explain it quite nicely. We already know even from our own paltry technology, that from an unimaginable distance away, Earth looks like a paradise. There's no missing it, none at all. There's no missing that Earth looks like a paradise world from an enormous distance outside the solar system. We already know it looks like that. And we've only had the ability to see that for 30 years. Imagine, imagine that there's a space-faring, space-viewing civilization that has 10 times better telescopic ability than we do and that's been around for 50,000 years 100,000 years a million years been around for 17,000 years imagine if there were if there's even one of those that's been around that long they wouldn't have known for a long time that earth has surging oceans of blue water that it's temperate that it's geothermal but not destructively so not not life endingly so who knows if they don't even have, they might even have the, the means to tell that life has been here. So where are they? If all this is true, where are they? Especially if they've had so long to be around, let's say they have, then what, what technological problem can't be solved in 30,000 years? Where are there at least broadcasts pinpointed directly to earth? They aren't, there aren't, there are none, they aren't here. 
There's no sign of that. There's no sign in all of the intense listening and looking that we've been doing that there's any life anywhere but here. So it could be that that's the reason. <laughs> Are you holding out any hope for that? I guess it's a rover mission sometime in the next two years that they're going to drill on the surface of Mars in a modest, in some humble capacity. Well, I can't wait to see the results of it. Yeah. But I'd Do you anticipate be that amazed. there will be water in, in the caves? I'd be amazed if there's microbial life. I'd be amazed if that were true. But there might be water. <laughs> you never know. I myself think that the problem will be radiation. So I don't think there'll be any life. I don't think it'll... The, I don't think we'll ever see a banner headline saying life on Mars. But I could be wrong. <laughs> I think that, that sweeping clouds of deadly cell-killing radiation is the reason why we haven't been contacted by alien civilizations, why we haven't been detected any sign that they exist. I think that's the reason. I think it's just a fluke. It's just random luck. Most of the time, solar systems with planets are doing just fine and doing just fine and doing just fine for, for 2 billion, 3.1 billion years. And then a nearby star, their Alpha Centauri, supernovas, and a wave of intense radiation, of lethal levels of radiation, sweeps through the whole solar system. And the wave itself is so broad that it takes 10 years to pass. Nothing lives through that. Nothing at all lives through that. And it, so it effectively sterilizes a solar system, even if that solar system had been teeming with life. That happens a lot. Stars explode and die a lot. <laughs> and that radiation goes all over the place. And it hasn't happened on Earth. But random chance. It's just random chance that Alpha Centauri didn't blow up 100,000 years ago. I mean, it's not random chance because we know it's star cycle. But you know what I mean. Some star nearby. Earth has never experienced that. And so life has developed here. <laughs> and we're having a talk on Zoom. <laughs> Is there, uh, as soon as we get into these kinds of topics, my mind immediately goes, oh, I don't know. It regresses into like a five-year-old's wonderment. And I wonder like, what, what is, is there a prevailing theory at the moment as to like what is at the end of it? Or is there an idea that the universe is somehow cyclical and it sort of feeds into itself? Or yeah. that kind of cosmology idea? just boggles the mind. It just boggles the mind. The idea that this thing is just in an expansion and that the expansion will go until it reaches its lasting limit. And then what happens? It's, it's, it's kind of it's just mind-boggling it's theoretical but it's so mind-boggling and it was given such uh such an enormous boost uh by the discovery of the background radiation what is background radiation yeah the background radiation of the universe so that we know that a lot of the theoretical musings about the beginning of the universe are actually true we know that wow. the so-called big bang did happen because the residual radiation left over from it is still around and was just detected by someone who wasn't even looking for it. That's just fascinating to me. That's a, but, but thankfully we won't be around when it happens. So I won't, I won't need to think about it. I was noticing that every issue, every article in the New Yorker today was about COVID-19. Um, I called it. Did you? In February, I said, we're gonna reach a point where no one ever talks about anything else. Well, you, yes, we reached it. There was one very amusing piece in, um, talk of the town about the handshake the history and future of the handshake but everything else was just kind of <laughs> it was amusing journalists every... are so pathetic <laughs> there, are, there are so many times when i'm sorry that i'm a member of that, of that. 
Well, um, I don't well, doubt it at all. But there was well, like, yeah. what is the history of the handshake? Well, it was no, it was more musing and on what like is the future um, of wither the handshake. <laughs> no, it wasn't Doom saying about the handshake. As although I've read plenty of that, where people were like, "Oh, we'll never be." Like down in here in Miami, the thing is the Cuban cheek kiss, which is more of a gestural thing. You put your cheek against someone's someone's cheek and you make a kissing noise. It's not an intimate. There's no mucus, but um, people have been saying it's the end of the cheek kiss. It's the end of the handshake. But I was wondering. I think even the fiction had grains of this of a pandemic vibe. But do you cons- is is do you consider that like a commercial effort on this on the end of the New Yorker, or do you consider that like just good journalism that they're staying of the moment and saturating or something in, in between? It might be the all all the pitches that they're getting. <laughs> I mean, you, if you you're putting out a magazine like the New Yorker or any other magazine, if it's weekly, you're you know you're at the mercy of what you're getting. You can ask for a lot, but you'll get a lot too. And it's probably writers are such thin-skinned and very impressionable creatures. They're such delicate little daffodils. That's probably the only thing they want to write about. Yes, yes. I know you're trapped indoors. I know you've lost your job and the business that you and your grandfather worked hard to build. But let me tell you at 3,000 words about what I think of all this. <laughs> yeah, and my divorce and stuff. It reminds me of that line. There's a line in the, there's a line in the movie Pearl Harbor. I don't know that many people remember the movie, the Ben Affleck movie. The Michael Bay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Michael Bay. There's, I forget who we can blame for the script, but it's hilarious. There's one line that was actually mocked in The New Yorker, but I saw it in the movie theater. I saw that movie in the movie theater, and I, I howled with laughter the minute I heard it. And then I realized, you know, the next week when The New Yorker's reviewer reviewed it, that he had noticed the same thing. The, 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 I forget the name of the actress who plays the, the female lead. Liv Tyler? But she's... Yeah, that's right. Liv Tyler is talking with, uh, I forget the name of the guy who plays the male lead. It's Josh not, not Ben Affleck. Josh Hartman. They're, they're having a conversation. And she's, she's saying, well, I, I was thinking about our future, but then all this happened. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, I think is what you mean. <laughs> and that's what this is going to be to see is just endless think pieces about this about every aspect of it unless the think pieces take a right turn at albuquerque unless it turns out that everybody was wrong about this in which case the the landscape of these think pieces could change drastically what if it turns out that this whole thing all of 2020 so far was an overreaction on the part of the world caused by social media aided by social media what if that turns out to be true it's just this is what it feels like to live in tectonically unstable times and this is aside from 9-11 probably the first time you've ever experienced that right right but in in, from that vantage where you're saying how we're gonna in the future look back on this as like a moment i was thinking about because today in the new york uh in the new york times book review there was um, not the Kissinger biography you just received, but there was a review of another Kissinger biography. And um, yeah. I was one, I know you were writing about it at the time as it was happening. And when you look back, do you think of it as like just an unmitigated travesty? Or do you think like that taught the country lessons that it's valuable to have in our past? Or it didn't. Ha- it didn't teach no. the country anything. No, no, it didn't teach the country anything. No. Now, the ultimate gamble that, that Kissinger did at the time was to say was to say in his own head, and of course won't say it out loud now because there's still a place called The Hague and he's still alive. So, so he won't ever say it out loud. But the thing that he thought 
in his head at the time, and he wasn't alone, but he was mainly responsible. The thing he thought was, people aren't really going to object if we're bombing somebody else, especially somebody they think is subhuman. Oh, well, I wasn't thinking so much about Kissinger himself, but about, because I know you, you, the scope of your writing was kind of more the general Watergate situation, right? Oh, yeah, well, I, went after, I went after Kissinger quite a bit individually, but yeah, well, okay, Water, Watergate, yes, right. But what do a, you see that as like an instructive episode, and it's good that we have that in our history because we can look back and we can say, yes, they stooped to these levels, tape on a door. Because the way, the way it was always presented to me in, 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 the high, in the history classes I had in high school and college was kind of like, like there was a before and after. It was a before and after, absolutely, but it wasn't that, obviously. What? How? How much? How much? Uh, you say tape on a door. I don't know how many of your listeners will know what you're talking about, but that was a signature little moment in Watergate of how pathetic and squalid it could be. Was tape to keep a door from closing and locking, and someone noticing tape on a door. But uh, you can't say that America or America's rulers or America's or America's walks of the press learned anything from that because tape on a door is absolutely nothing better or different than a Sharpie on a map. In fact, it is a little different because a Sharpie on a map is flatly delusional. Wait, what are you referring to? I'm referring to the President of the United States mistakenly claiming that a hurricane was going to hit a state that it absolutely was not going to hit. Oh, and instead right. of clarifying his position, drawing on a map drawing on a map like a child would do that is flatly delusional that that he that someone an adult would do that at all much less do it and think that no one would notice or that it could be passed off as legitimate or that people would forget at least tape on a door i mean yes it was squalid and pathetic but it was during a crime it was ridiculous but it wasn't ever going to see, it wasn't ever supposed to see the light of day it wasn't ever supposed to be that people 50 years later would be talking about it it wasn't done in the front of news cameras um sir uh it looks like somebody drew on that map that's just through the looking glass that's just weird funhouse levels of dystopia but there was a before and after because before that americans by and large believed in the presidency and after that they didn't before that, Americans of that generation had been able to say the presidency is a place where heroes go to have a CEO job. And after that, no. And I don't, I may be, I may be just a cockeyed optimist here, but I don't believe the Trumpists. I don't believe the people who paint their faces red, white, and blue and say Donald Trump, who say on Twitter, Donald Trump is the greatest president in the history of the United States, the greatest president we've ever had. I don't believe they believe it. I, I don't at all. I think there's a, a, a strong element of trolling that's baked into Trumpism. But before Watergate, that idea could be held unironically by an educated adult. And now it no longer can. Now, if you say that about any president, it's going to be a subject for mockery right to your face. If you say it at a party, it won't, back when we could go to parties, it won't be that the people will snicker about it once you're gone. They'll snicker at it right to your face. That is seen now as a level of naivete on par with believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Um, okay. Well, another thing that had crossed my mind is... Um kind of inspired by your talking up of uh, March Mid Mystery Madness. I sort of made a resolution for March to read the entire Hannibal Lecter series. And I'd read the first three when I was in middle school, um, but obviously didn't pick up as much as the author put there. And I had never read Hannibal Rising. 
So I read the first three, and I was almost like emotional reading Red Dragon because for the past year, I've I, my reading has been so focused on like betterment and learning things about like film history, biographies, and stuff. And Red Dragon is, was like the first thing I realized. It was the first thing I'd read in so long, where the author's sole purpose is to engage, absorb you, and entertain you, and it was yeah. wonderful. And then it's a brilliant book, just brilliant. Amazing. That's a shame that people don't read it because they think I've seen the movie, so I don't need to read the book. It's that's such a shame. You're talking about the not uh, Manhunter. I'm talking about the 2004. Not Manhunter. Okay, all right. Five. Okay. Yeah, which I know okay, Thomas I, Harris. I remember the, it's, it's the uh, the Ralph Fangs. The or no, what's his name? Yeah, Ralph, Ralph Fiennes yeah. plays Dollarhide. Plays um, Dollarhide. Yes, and does a fantastic job as Dollarhide. Yeah, that movie. Um, I just realized that Thomas Harris lives here. lives Lives down here in Miami. And oh yeah. He, he did a New York Times interview, His, I think his only promotional thing for Carrie Mora at the Books and Books down here in Coral Gables. And he was talking about the uni- the unanimous shutdown of Hannibal Rising. And I realized I've never heard you talk about it. I've heard, I was I was delighted when, like a couple of weeks ago, you had two occasions to, t- to like, in a double blinking way, just talk about how mystified you are by the ending of Hannibal. But I've never gotten your 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 thoughts about the prequel. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't quite gel. It doesn't deserve the smackdown that it got from critics. It was better than almost any other general, general interest popular novel of that year. But it doesn't gel as a book, and you don't expect that from from Thomas Harris because ordinarily his books are beautifully crafted from beginning to end. They're they they beautifully conf- they beautifully conclude in structured, controlled ways that are almost unknown in contemporary fiction. Nobody does that anymore. I keep expecting contemporary novels to end in mid-sentence. And Thomas Harris is the exact opposite of that. He crafts an ending, which is why Hannibal bothered me so much. But that is completely missing from Hannibal Rising. There are wonderful moments, absolutely wonderful moments scattered throughout it. Classic moments that no one else can quite do. They didn't. They don't cohere. There are great characters, but they don't cohere. The last third, to me, is what I was riffing about in the previous episode of the podcast. It was the last third where he becomes this gun-toting vigilante that just seemed so bizarre, and it seemed like something outside of this franchise. Um, and what you're yeah. talking about that how how the stories are so well structured. I read the last hundred pages of Red Dragon on one day, and I read the entirety of Silence of the Lambs the next day. And in the beginning of Silence of the Lambs, they have this offhand reference to the fact that Will Graham is now a bumbling alcoholic living alone. And it was so With a face like a jigsaw puzzle. Yes, and it was so emotional. Like, I I had to look up from the book and just sort of sit on that for a while. But Um, we're not 100% sure that that version is true. Oh, is that just a remark that a character made? That's somebody just talking about Will Graham. It it might not be true. Right. I mean, we get all sorts of tossed off characterizations like that of everybody all throughout the books, and they don't always turn out to be true. But yeah, it's a, it's a shatter. It always made me wish that that Harris would go back and tell that story. But I think he's pretty much done with that whole world and all the people in it. I don't think he wants anything to do with it anymore. Carrie Mora echoes the pattern of that, but it doesn't bring any of the people back, doesn't mention any of them. I just started. I'm, I'm about 30 pages into Karimura. Well, you see what I mean then, right? Even even 30 pages in, you see the, yeah. the, 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 the villain. <laughs> the villain is, is very clearly meant to upstage Hannibal Lecter. He's very clearly meant to be even more evil <laughs> than, than Hannibal Lecter. 
but you don't ever believe him. You don't ever believe that the villain is real. And you, you do believe that about Lecter. I now have mixed feelings about Anthony Hopkins' realization uh, of that character having binged it. It's just his his realization of the character is so campy. Oh, okay, wait, there are two things from that Harris interview that mystified me. One was him saying that he really was disappointed by Manhunter. And then the other thing was he says to this reporter, the reporter says, what are your days like? And he says, well, I sit down and I, I start writing at around noon and then I go for several hours. But is he suggesting that like he's been doing this for the past decade or does he mean like just for the book? Yeah. Or did this a, book take all that time? He's a a rare kind of writer, the kind of writer who, uh, in my opinion, just from looking over the outside, I don't know him at all. I've never talked to him, but I get the impression that he's the rare kind of writer who will, who can figure out that a book is not workable in the form that he ha- that he imagines it on page three hundred and junk mm-hmm. the thing. <laughs> I, I get the impression he's that kind of writer. So he probably writes a huge amount of stuff that we'll never see the light of day and that he might not even keep. Certainly that was true with, with the novel Hannibal, which was had its had its birth, original genesis, an enormous amount of page count as something completely different. Not a Hannibal Lecter story at all. It was it was meant to be all I think I think it might originally have been meant to be a true crime book about an Italian serial killer, Il Mostro, the guy that's in the book, the guy that's yeah. talked about in the book. I think the book originally started, its genesis, I think, was originally a true crime book about that. And that he got a lot of the way in and then realized now, I, what, or either he realized it or maybe an agent or a publicist or somebody said, you know, the, the commercial value here is in continuing the story of Hannibal Lecter and Clary yeah. Starling. I was reading an obituary of Dino De Laurentiis, and apparently Dino De Laurentiis was so desperate for him to finish the novel so he could adapt it into a film that he sent his personal pasta chef down to Miami to live with <laughs> Harris <laughs> to prepare meals thinking that if Harris were fed, he would he would write faster. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like Dino De Laurentiis. It sounds like something he would think. <laughs> but you, you had mentioned how he would work. He wrote all the time. I just got a, a galley of um, a book that comes out on May 22nd. It is the first of Philip Roth's friends to write a memoir about their friendship. Um, it's It says it's 192 pages. It's probably 35,000 words. It's it's barely anything. But um, he does explore that of Roth being a writer who, even after he had retired, just wrote habitually. And he would just write these just obsessive... Oh, yeah, I know you. I know you hate his work, but it is. I, I, I have to work. imagine he's the kind yeah. of figure who would interest you, especially when it comes Very to much. Bailey's thousand page. Something I have learned in my whenever I do ask a publicist for a galley, I realize I've inflated the importance of this book in my head, and I've told myself, "Oh, they'll never give it to me. Surely they're keeping this one under lock and key." That's very rare. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, you want a hard copy too?" Yeah, the, the, their job is to get rid of the books. The lock and key is very rare. It's for very rare exceptions. And that's when the publicist doesn't want word to leak out. But most of them do. Well, I remember you saying you, you kind of had to twist some nipples to get a copy of that anonymous book about the Trump administration, right? Yeah, and that was such a waste of effort. I, I shouldn't have bothered. I thought it would be something special. I had no idea there'd be a cottage industry of such things. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't dent anything because of the American press because they keep giving this guy every every break in the world while he's calling them names in public and on live tv he's still they're still giving him every break in the world so those books would matter if people pounced on them but they don't 
Do you think you'll get an advanced copy of something as hot as like the next uh, Song of Ice and Fire book? <laughs> I love how your dreams just don't die, do they? <laughs> there isn't going to be a next book in that series. Mark, not for Mark. He's not going to write another book. He's not going to write another book. Hypothetically, then, is that the kind of thing that they would kind of strong arm you again? Like, they would. I don't think I could get a copy of that if it existed. That'd be that'd be a lot on the same level as uh, Go Tell a Watchman, or the the Harper Lee. That where where they protected that. Oh God, yes. Oh God, yes. Well, it was going to be the big news story, the biggest book news story of anybody's lifetime, and they knew that they didn't want. They wanted to carefully control who had copies of that book. There were only about five copies that went out, and they went out by messenger on bikes. Really? <laughs> yes. There was no. It was not left to chance at all. It was. It was. Uh, I know three people who got copies of that book, and all of them had to sign for it at their door. It didn't. It's not like it went to the newsroom or anything like that, where, where a whole bunch of people might have access to it. Do you think that's a marketing ploy? Do you think that like? They're trying to get to butter know. up the critic with a feeling of exclusivity. Well, but that that wouldn't apply to the fact that the same thing happened with those shipments when they went by pallet to bookstores. I knew people in receiving rooms at Barnes and Noble that that were read the riot act. They were they were read literally from a piece of paper by their employer, telling them, "Look, this isn't me talking. This is Bertelsmann talking. This is Bertelsmann threatening to sue you personally." If this pallet is not inviolate, when the when the visit the, the uh, moratorium night on lifted. release date, yeah. If we if we a representative of the publishing house comes to this receiving room the night before and we take a picture of that pallet and it's been broken into, you'll lose your job and you'll go to court. We'll sue you personally, you, Mister Receiving Manager. <laughs> Stuff like that, I don't think is part of a. A canny market employee, I, or maybe it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. I I think it's all kind of ridiculous. But yeah, I uh, I've been I was kind of chafed recently to read an interview with uh, Salinger's son, who says that yes, there are several completed Salinger novels, and they're all going to be. This has been the rumor. But he says first, what the first thing they're going to do is they're going to. I didn't realize this hadn't already been done. Release his existing catalog on eBooks on Kindle. I didn't realize that was, and he was like, that's going to take at least a few years. And I was thinking, how the hell does that take a few years? Yeah. And he's saying it'll be probably another decade before we see the, the, uh, the completed novels, the novels that we haven't already seen. Yeah. The rumor has been for 40 years, Susan Cheever, the rumor has been forever that that, ha that house is just full of manuscripts that yeah. he, like you mentioned with, with Philip Roth or any, a lot of other people I could name. Once you get into the habit of getting there at your desk and writing for a long stretch of time, it's well i can speak from personal experience it's it's a fantastic experience yeah it gets into you it really does so that your day feels badly incomplete if you don't do that badly badly incomplete i knew i knew a writer once years and years ago who had that routine wrote every day it was how he clawed his way out of his hangover every single day and when he went into the hospital his liver started to fail he went into the hospital he had to write even there in his hospital bed he had to write as much as he possibly could. It's a great feeling. You ought to try it sometime. I do. I write every day. I do. I swear to God.
oh, sorry, I'm supposed to vocalize, but I don't know how to vocalize an icy glare. How do I, how do I vocalize an icy glare? I don't know how I, I to do, do that. I've maintained the habit, and actually, I was using basically the website as my diary, but I picked up another one, just for the more scattered, unstructured, broken sentence thoughts. Should you and... tell your listeners that I'm still glaring at you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a penetrative stare. <laughs> I don't know why that's so hard to believe. And now I, I script all of the podcasts, so I'm I'm working on those. Um, I'm editing a novel that I wrote that I finished in March. Um, I uh, okay, do... so you know what I'm talking about then. You know Absolutely. what it feels like. Your day would feel worse. Yeah. Um. And although Salinger's was a little more manic, it seemed I, his his much younger wife, the one that he married when she was like 17, she went on to say that in that Jay Salerno oral history of Salinger, oral biography, yes. whatever, that he would come in for dinner and he would say, you won't believe what Holson did today or Holden did today. Um, that he spoke of them in in the present tense as if they were ambling about the compound yeah. doing things. Yeah, well, that I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for people who write the made-up stories, but I've done it myself many times. And yeah, that, you get that does into become it. something. I mean, I can't stand it when writers, I mean, like everybody, like every other reader, I can't stand it when a writer says, well, my characters tell me what they're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stand that. I always hate it. I always love it when the one in a blue moon writer says something completely different. The Nabokov uh, thing. Uh, yeah. Right. Or, or an interviewer gave that softball question to Muriel Spark, and she said, my dear, my characters don't cross the street unless I tell them to. <laughs> <laughs> I like I'm always rushed by that but most writers like to they like to say you know my writers my characters take on a life of their own and I think it's a very canny reason why they do that it shifts responsibility right <laughs> it was really bad you can just say well it was their fault not mine but even so when I have written a long work of fiction sometimes a tamer equivalent of that does actually happen where you have yeah. written a character for a long time and that character is about to encounter a new thing in the plot, a complication in the plot, an obstacle. And you suddenly think, well, okay, I had planned for this to happen, but the character that I have written wouldn't do that. The character that I've actually written so far, not the one I plotted, but the one that I've written so far would not do that. In fact, I think if I step back, that character would do this instead. It's yeah. a weaker version of that, but it's still, I've had that happen many times. Yeah. Same. And I also like, I call it the, um, the noisy neighbor thing or you create what you expect to be a peripheral character you put him in the next room while you focus on your intended protagonist but he's making so much noise this guy next door that you end up <laughs> yes. shifting focus and that person consumes the story or you try hard not to have that happen yeah that one way or another i i i had i experienced that once when i i wrote uh i wrote a novel of the trojan war called troy war and I was going to keep the focus right where you would expect me to keep the focus, but uh, but a couple of the first few chapters required me to write about King Priam of Troy. And the more I wrote about him, the more I thought, okay, well, this guy has walked and talked with Olympians, and he's tall, taller than anybody. He's incredibly old. He's incredibly powerful. He's semi-mythological himself, and he's going by Priam isn't even a real name. He's if that's not his name. He's this whole thing is. This whole being, he started to be someone I really, really liked writing. I really, really enjoyed writing him. So to the point where I, I had to control that, or it would have taken over the book. It would become 
prime song or something like that i don't even know <laughs> and that became very active at the end of troy war because once i was just moving things forward just the way they go in the story in homer and in quintus of smyrna and i was getting towards the end and i was suddenly realizing every time i sat down to write i was thinking well you know what's coming you're right i mean it's not achilles that kills Priam. it's achilles son it's a little boy who kills Priam. How are you going to be able to do that? How are you going to be able to write that? And I actually toyed with the idea of having that not be true, just having that be apocryphal, having Neoptolemus come come upon him when he's already dead or something like that. Well, when you talk about that, that makes me think that this is a writing project that would have required a lot of research. And in the evenings, the, my winding down reading has been the second volume of Anthony Burgess's memoir. It must be so harrowing to think I'm finally setting down on a tablet my life. And I, I know I would be paralyzed with indecision about how to approach it, whatever. And then you get the vibe with Burgess that at one point he just said, fuck it, let me sit down and start writing it. And it seemed, you can tell that he's just every day showing up at his typewriter and just telling it like it happened. He's not beating himself up about, do I do flashbacks? Do I do whatever? Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, do you are you still flirting with the idea of either doing a Taft book or the memoir? A half book, yes, absolutely, and also a memoir, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, the the apocryphal rumors were that Burgess's motivation for that was that he thought he was dying. Oh really? And, well, he they, it was published the second volume not long before he died, right? Like three years. Right, right. But the idea for for the way that he would do it, the way that you described, where it was just be here, all my stories. This is not vetted through a lawyer. This is just me. Yeah. That, uh, that kind of thing, that kind of uh, reaction that a lot of people who write think, well, if I'm going to access a, access that for any book, it's going to be for a memoir where I don't care at all. And I think we'd, get, we'd have a lot of great books if writers did that and just stipulated that it had to be published posthumously. That would be, you'd be on caring. So that would, that would be fantastic. <laughs> you described but, that phenomenon wonderfully once in a video. This is probably three years ago. You were talking about, I think you were talking about George R. R. Martin's Glacial approach to writing and you said but maybe what will happen to martin is what's happened to so many other writers where one day you're stepping out of the shower and you slip and you see your life flash before your eyes and then you catch yourself on the on the sink ledge just before you die and it awakens something it kicks out the brick that of, of your jenga stack and suddenly everything topples forth and you suddenly you write like you're not going to be here tomorrow people have those moments he won't I was wrong to call his writing style glacial because glaciers move. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not possible to have a writing style if you don't write. So he can have an assistant polish up his working notes into lore that comes out as a book with a vaguely quasi medieval banner on it with a quasi medieval lion on it and it sounds like crazy. Okay, well you can keep your mortgages up and you can keep your grandchildren's trust funds well funded doing that. But that's all. That's all. <laughs> How are his but digressive books, these other... The lore books. Yeah. They're good. They're good. They're, they're not him. He's not writing them. He doesn't write the, even the integumentary tissue. It's, it's an assistant. This, this assistant that was, that was notoriously mentioned in the New Yorker article about him, that is his alter ego and is the reason why we're not going to ever get another book in this series. Uh, that person, I forget his name you always forget that person's name but that that person is the one who stitched together the last book the last uh westeros related book 
and the one before that. Uh, but that person has been told very explicitly that you cannot write the next book. That person, as I forget the person's name, I'm talking about him, but I don't remember his name, but rumor has it, he's been offered a mountain of money by wealthy fans to write that last book. And the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is completely no from the author. So, uh, but okay, okay. Well, back to your question, approach to, I, yeah. I would, I am strongly considering writing a memoir. <laughs> yes. I am strongly considering writing a memoir. Yes. And uh, pursuing it. If I do it, I will then pursue it. I will, I won't just write it the way I've done everything else. I will publish it. I will indie publish it. I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to, I don't think, I don't picture myself going through the, the traditional route ever. I don't picture myself doing it that. It would be very different for you now because basically you would put in your top paragraph, the first sentence you would say, I have a YouTube channel with, with, I mean, if it took you a year to write this memoir, you would be at 10,000 followers. You would say, I have X I number. Yes, you will. I and, won't even have 8,000 by next year. Yeah, you will. <laughs> Good Lord. Because this stuff compounds. I've had YouTubers tell me that, but but I don't believe it's going to happen with my channel. I mean, honestly, my channel is... Have you seen some of those videos where a YouTuber gathers around that, that ticker that shows them they're about to hit a million? Yes. And you see that in the course of any given hour, of any given day, once you're at 900,000 followers, you are dropping and picking up 2,000 oh, right, yes. followers every hour, yeah. every 30 well, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, once you get into the realm of five figures, I'm sure it'll be something similar. You'll drop dozens and pick up dozens of, of followers every day. Well, but that, that will be your opening line in your query letter. But would I, it matter to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> would it matter more than the fact that nobody's ever heard of me? That no, you've got you have a loyal following of inherently bookish people. It's not like you've got an auto show. You have a motorcycle channel with ten thousand followers, of whom nine hundred might buy the book that you write about motorcycles. You have a book channel, <laughs> and you've got ten thousand who subscribe. Well, you you will have ten thousand who subscribe, and then you've deduced from your email list that how many how many dozens or hundreds just lurk and don't subscribe. I have lots of lurkers. Yeah. Plus, you've got you've got professional affiliations. You've got people who have been working alongside you for years who are going to review your book. Um, I I don't know. I'm a sub radar book reviewer. But also your network. I know of, lots of about radar book reviewers. But the but other booktubers, I, you will utilize their fan bases because um, every other booktuber with whom you've been chummy will talk about your book. Will interview you. You will be available to readers. <laughs> Well, that's very optimistic. Certainly, very, very complimentary. Um, what is what has skewed my perception of this is when you look on the Twitter, the Twitter conversation amongst agents, they're talking about their daily life and the need to pick up a book. You know, they're living in the most expensive city in the world. They've got children, and they've got to pick up a book that will sell. So I think if you open with a, you know, what's your platform? That's their first question. Wow, is it really? Wow. Yeah. Well, that would be very different from the last experience that I had, where the, it was in just incredibly maddening just incredible. that was with 1515 that you went to lunch with an agent who said basically rewrite it yeah well not 15 it was optimus a novel that i wrote about the roman emperor trajan where someone said yeah i it was told in the first person singular and the person said yeah i could i could maybe consider re representing this provided you change the point of view and there was a long pause and then i said so what you're saying is rewrite every word and you might consider representing it and 
without, without him batting an eyelash. She said, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you write, rewrite every word of it, I might consider reviewing or uh, representing it. <laughs> Not if you rewrite every word, I will definitely represent you, but I, then I'll think about it. I'm not even going to think about it until you've written every word. I, I couldn't get away fast enough. I kept a smile on my face and said, oh, well, that's, that, that's great. Thanks. That's, uh, you know, I'll think about it a lot. But I couldn't get away fast enough. <laughs> From, it turns out, the whole process, not just that one lunch. Indie Root seems so much more attractive. <laughs> you know, have somebody design a really nice cover. I'm in control of it. Uh, it's not going to be, I don't think, a very commercial book. I want it to be very long. I want it to include a lot and i don't imagine that's commercial i don't imagine there's much i think i think a collection a big collection of reviews will probably be more commercial than that because that those know. are about those what those peg on books that people have read or if not reviews then a collection of essays of of musings about about books boy i could write forever about thomas harris alone and those books and maybe woo some people away from the movies to reading the books that's the kind of thing I would love for you to do, as opposed to just your watchdog appraisals of book by book as they come out. Appraise a series. If you were to write, you know... I could go on and on about the, the Hannibal Lecter saga as we know it. I could go on and on about it. You could, I could talk about Red Dragon for hours and the choices that are made in that book. I'm always fascinated uh, by a popular book like that, like Red Dragon or uh, Close Encounters or jaws or whatever it is that it that achieves a ma an enormous celluloid success so that 10 times as many people know about it from a movie as would ever think about reading it i'm always fascinated in in that process to look at the book and try and find things that could not be filmed things that that give the book a kernel of its own identity that no filmmaker can take from it because no filmmaker can represent it. I always, I always look for that in something like The Godfather or Jaws or, or, or uh, Red Dragon for something that a novelist can do, but that not even the best film director could affect. And Red Dragon has a couple of moments like that. Jaws opens with a moment like that, where the, the girl is swimming, you know, at night. Pre-dawn in in the water, and we're told that the fish rockets past her, twenty-five feet below her. The, the the sensory organs of its skin want the the proximity so that it can learn more about her, but it is not touching her nor even swimming near her, twenty-five feet below her, and incredibly fast. And we're told that the wave of the fish is passing bobs her up and down in the water for just a minute. She doesn't suspect anything. She doesn't suspect that it's the tide at all. But when she when the, she's bobbed up and down like that, a second later, she's filled with an inchoate sense of dread. She has not felt anything out of the ordinary from when she swam a million times before, but suddenly she's afraid. And then the, the attack happens right after that. But no one could film that. That's an, an, an essentially novelistic moment. And I love that. When you can find that kind of a kernel in the original source material book. Like, for instance, in a dragon. The, a scene that has never been filmed. It wasn't filmed in either version of the, of the book because you couldn't film it. The scene, that great scene where, uh, where uh, 
Will Graham is interviewing the cranky old man who may have seen Dollarhide's van on the service road while he's out yes. with his garden and fussing with his neighbor. And we get in that scene, we get incredible details about the flush on his skin and the, the old man's sweat and the dust patina over the things in his house that show that maybe he naps a lot more than he's willing to admit that he's that he's growing old and doesn't want to admit it. The only way that Will Graham gets anything useful out of him in that scene is to anger him, to get him past anger and defensiveness so that he can give an actual good detail. And you couldn't film that. There's no way, I, I don't think you could. I don't think there's a way that you could film that. Do you think that might've been some of Thomas Harris's aspirations with the end of the Hannibal novel? Um, that long, that prolonged, drugged, semi-catatonic therapy session he's having with Clarice where she's dipping back into her memory about her father. Is he trying to be anti-cinematic? That's a charitable explanation. We'll go with that. Sure, we like Thomas Harris. We'll go with that. <laughs> the alternative explanation is horrifying. The two, There are two main alternative explanations that I can think of, and they're both horrifying. What? One is that it was a very early example of an absolutely noxious uh, artistic choice, if you want to call it that, in the 21st century, which is subverting expectations. Oh. One it is, is that it's bad. <laughs> Future film historians are going to look back on the whole phenomenon of subverting expectations and just wince. I hope that all the filmmakers that have and property owners who have done that in every kind of imaginable intellectual property in the 21st century live long enough to cry bitter tears regretting it. I hope they suffer for doing that over and over again within so many different intellectual properties. It could have been that. And it, the, the other hypothetical explanation is even worse. And you can see it in Kari Mora. You can see it in virtually everything that he writes, which is a kind of... Well, I mean, the, the, the trite thing to say is that novelists always are psychoanalyzing themselves on the page. And if there's even an element of truth to that, then what do we make of what Thomas Harris thinks on some level of women? I mean, I know I know he seems like he's on solid ground because he invented Clary Starling, but <laughs> what what is the signature hallmark of his villains? A oh, cartoonish yeah, yeah. dehumanization of women. A cartoonish... De you know, it's not just it puts the lather in the basket or it gets the hose. Think of the villain in Kari Mora. It's an oh, I'm only I'm only like thirty pages in, oh. but yeah, well, putting someone in lie, yeah, the women yeah, in lie, it's, it's human trafficking. Right? But it's not just the lie. You'll learn you'll learn in a little bit what this villain does in addition to that, and it's absolutely baroque. It gets you to the point, like in American Psycho, where you're not saying, "Boy, oh boy, is that inventive on the author's part to come up with that." Instead, you're thinking, "What kind of a mind comes up with that?" It's not a pleasant feeling anymore. It's that is gross, and it's not gross for the character. It's gross for the writer to have ever imagined such a thing. This character, quote-unquote, modifies women for high-bidding high buyers. He modifies them physically, and that is so disgusting. Who thinks of that? He says it's based on real material. He says, you know, there are things in, in the Florida police files that would curl your hair. I've been soft on it, if anything. I'm not sure that I believe that. I'm not sure. That, one way or another, it, the fate of Clary Starling. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't looked at it that way. I had been thinking that with every book 
it seems almost as though the killer is a metaphor for the book itself. And the detective's effort to get into the mind of the killer seemed to be a metaphor for how Harris is trying to get into his own book and trying to figure it out. Because I remember an interview with Stephen King talking where he made a remark about how, like, I'm the anti-Thomas Harris. And he was saying that, you know, Tom's my friend and he's one of the few writers I know where he, he is one of those bleed at the typewriter types where it's pain for him. It's a struggle. And I so when I... That's true. When I would agree see the, with the, the anti-Thomas Harris part. <laughs> well, sure. yes, in more ways than one. But when you see the, uh, those scenes of Will Graham sitting in, in an empty, blood-spattered living room and trying to just trying to get in touch with something in his head, it's, it's, it made me think, like, this is probably Thomas Harris at his typewriter. <laughs> you could be right. I love that. I absolutely love the dichotomy there, the, the, the way he captures it, because Will Graham much wants for a penny to drop in those scenes when he's in a Leeds home or whatever or if there's a Kobe home he wants a penny to drop but he also doesn't want it to happen because oh, it shows that you might have something of that in you it shows that, that, that he is on the same wavelength as this monster and he doesn't want to do that anymore he doesn't want that you can you can tell in the early part of Red Dragon especially that he's kind of in a way hoping that he has lost the knack and he, so there's a part of him that's wary that he's going to these bloodstains and suddenly think, ah, okay, <laughs> so now I'm going to want to read Red Dragon again. And there's no excuse for me to do that. None. none well, you mentioned, no you mentioned the horrific stuff in American Psycho. And I was, Brady Sinellis now says that like part of the reason he didn't come out um, for so long is because he didn't want his books, his novels to be ghettoized into the gay section. It, it was, I, regardless of whatever he's doing in interviews these days, it was the world's least kept secret. So, so really, I, I, I'm not sure what I'm not sure what he's getting at there. I, I, there's no possibility that American Psycho would have been ghettoized as gay fiction. Right? Well, I think he's it thinking about Glamorama. So Glamorama would have, would have gone into the gay section, right? But Glamorama was just bad. <laughs> so, so I enjoyed it. Get so did I, but it is just bad. I mean, ghettoization would have saved it, <laughs> from, from sales-wise. At least it would have would have given it a little lease on life. And, and I don't. For him to look at the current publishing situation in America and want to avoid ghettoization just boggles my mind. Look at the gigantic piles of absolutely god awful wet wash that get prayed from one end of Fifth Avenue to another with ticker tape parades just because yeah. they're gay. If you criticize my book, well, then we know what you are. That has never been the case in American society ever. That that a critic would be pilloried for having an opinion. Now he's got to be looking at the American publishing world for fiction and saying, "Okay, well, that clomping sound I heard and that telltale odor means the return of a gigantic herd of sacred cows. I could be one of them. Why don't I write a novel about a vaguely pederastic experience that I had when I was fifteen? Why don't I do that?" And then instead of burying it under fairly good prose and maybe swapping a gender here and there, instead of doing that, what I'll do is go on Ellen DeGeneres and say this is a photographic reprint of my own experience. I called it a novel, but we know how that goes. It'd be a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, it'd be made into a movie starring the next young thing. Fans would embrace it. They they would adopt the character names of the characters in the story. 
there have been weddings. There have been gay weddings. Twenty-somethings wedding themselves. And for the purpose of their wedding, they insist that the preacher and everyone in the audience refer to them by the names of the two gay characters in Call Me By Your Name. He has to be looking at that phenomenon. It's incredibly sickly. That's probably why he doesn't want anything to do with it. But it would certainly be a nice retirement nest egg. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, there have been I moments find- where I'm tempted to do that myself. It's so easy. The pickings are so easy. If if Garth Greenwell and Edward Louis can be praised as saints on a community as knowing as book two, purely for identity politics reasons, then identity politics is the way to go if you want to make sure that you know you have a house then it's the way to go believe me there's a part of me that is cynical enough to to have wanted to game that system and i'm not going to do it but there's a part of me that wants to you could game it from either end or no yeah. pun intended <laughs> <laughs> you could game it from either end you could either write the kind of sacred cow book that cannot be assailed or you could write the kind of sacred cow book that has nothing to do with you and get a million yards of free press for cultural appropriation. That That's equally easy to do. Either one of those approaches would work for me. I could write a, a story about a, a rough and tumble South Boston boy who falls in love with a, a, a closeted gay furniture connoisseur from the back bay and they've got they've got clashing worlds, but there's a carnal intensity, and neither one can speak its name or whatnot. And then I can go on, you know, on the talk shows and say, well, you better not criticize it. <laughs> there are enough people left alive. You better not. Or I could do something that I've been very tempted to do in the last four years, just to see what would happen. And that is to write a 400-page, incredibly wrenching first-person novel told from the point of view of an 1850s female slave in Virginia. <laughs> Just to see the free press that I would get. <laughs> Just an, an endless river of free press. An endless river of it. And I could make things even worse. Oh my God, I could make things even worse. I know a couple of young women from Boston University, young black women, who would be happy to claim to be the author so that we could have a big reveal. Maybe even orchestrate an involuntary reveal. I could orchestrate. I could. I know lots of young people who are bored out of their mind. All they do is vape all day. I could find another one of them in addition to the the young woman who has come forward in my book because that would get it sold. I could then have some other young person reveal it on Twitter once the book is out. Yo, yo, guys. I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but I decay. But. <laughs> The system is so easy to game. That would be the talk of an entire year. That would be it guaranteed be. million copy bestseller. Guaranteed. That, Everybody the in the fall, world would want. The woman taking the fall there would really suffer. Everybody would be fine. And it would sell a million copies. Joaquin Phoenix and Ben Affleck's brother, Casey Affleck, when they made that fake documentary, remember Joaquin Phoenix pretended he grew that long beard? And... It, it really hurt Joaquin Phoenix's career for a few years, because, and they were marveling at, like, people did not like being pranked. <laughs> By and large, people have no sense of humor about it. No. But in the, the situation that I described, uh, they wouldn't know they were being pranked. I would obviously have to have you killed. The, the, the weird world that we're in now, ghettoization is the goal. It's not the thing to avoid. It's the thing you want, because it guarantees you everything. It guarantees you everything that most writers want. Uh, 
publication, serialization, a movie adaptation, lots and lots and lots of fans. It guarantees you all of that. Nation does now, but maybe then, maybe not. Maybe maybe I'm being too cavalier. Certainly before, I don't, I'm just naturally splitting things between the 20th and the 21st century. Yeah, which is kind of wrong. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I shouldn't do that because the demarcation was not the 20th century versus the 20th the 21st century. It was pre-social media and post-social media, and that that is not the same thing. So I should I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I right. shouldn't do that. As anything. is what's often said that the 1960s, as we conceive of them, began in 1967. That the sort of free With love TV radical. No, well, generally, I, that's I'm thinking of Martin Amis in particular, um, talking about like, and I, I've seen it in Thousand Movie Project the real cinematic innovation the moving away from the 1950s whatever that really didn't happen until the mid late 60s yeah the early half of the 60s was pretty much the 50s 2.0 except they had given up thank god the bible epics why do you say thank god because why? it was so i'm quoting now i'm partially quoting from superman 2 <laughs> terrence stamp as general zod why do you say this when you know that i would kill you for it <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lines of that whole movie. Where he says, "Why do you say this when you know that I will kill you for it?" <laughs> I had forgotten. I was just looking at the back of my copy of the Godfather novel, and it says Mario Puzo. You know, they don't number his literary accomplishments up there. They mention also the screenwriter of Superman too. Yes, although not the funny parts. Puzo couldn't tell the joke to save his life. The funny parts were there's there's another guy that's on the credit, not as I think as a consultant or something like that, who put in the jokes. So he put in the, that, that great line, why do you say this when you know that I will kill you for it? He put in the great line where E.G. Marshall, what he was doing in that movie, I have no idea, where he, he's the president of the United States and he kneels to save the country and just sort of says to himself, oh, God. <laughs> Terrence Stamp says, not God, Zod. <laughs> and my favorite one of all, where Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor just deadpans, I never thought this thing would go the distance. <laughs> when all the Kryptonians are fighting each other he says i thought this thing would go the distance <laughs> that wasn't puzo puzo couldn't do comedy <laughs> probably not okay. as you uh, yeah have you seen those terrible videos of of uh, brando on the set with the cue cards someone crouching and walking in front of him absolutely horrifying i don't i don't understand that at all i know that a million miles of prose have been written on it but i don't understand that at all i i i'm not you I have any knowledge i don't have the knowledge that you're amassing in this thousand movie project of the movie world i'm just looking at it from an outsider and saying okay one hour of that crap one hour of it and i go to rod steiner so one hour of that crap and i tell you okay well Marlon, this isn't going to work. I know you're going to sue me. I have lawyers too, but I want you off the set. This isn't going to work. Sorry. Everybody take the rest of the day off. That day, you go to Rod Steiner or Christopher Plummer or whatever, and you start over. You still have a brilliant movie. Yeah. You're not, you don't have any of the rest of this crap at all. I don't understand why that happened. I honestly don't. I know that that film, the dude bros who love Godfather and all the mythology that sprung up around it are going to say, boy, you don't get it. I can freely confess that. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Go immediately to the next person on your list. The director's job at that point is to say, this isn't working. So you need to go and I need to go to my next choice. And the, 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 the ultimate justification that people always say about Godfather is that, well, the result was a great movie. 
I think it would have been great anyway with yeah. the same actor, with a competent actor in that role. I think it would have been great anyway. And I think if you watch the movie of The Godfather and pay attention to Marlon Brando, he's terrible. Think of the, there are some scenes in that movie when, when Corleone is the main character in the scene, the, the scene with, with all the families around the melodramatic wooden table. Those scenes are supposed to have power. When, he, oh, when he's talking about whether or not his family wants to get in the drug trade. Wait, I thought you him. were talking. I thought you were talking about his role in Superman. Because it's only oh, the no, first no, five no, minutes. I'm talking about him in The Godfather. He sounds like local theater. He's the only one who does. They're all doing a fantastic. But if you watch that scene without the Godfather mythos in your ears, he's doing a bad job. It's not just that he's not keeping up with them. It's that he's really bad. The guy who read their lines to them in rehearsals could have done a better job as Corleone in those scenes. You look at scenes like that and you think about Rod Steiger. My favorite, one scene. of my favorite actors of all time. Imagine how they would be. Even, even a long shot, a very great long shot was Ernest Borgnine. Even he would have been a better job in that. Might have changed his career. Oh, I, well, yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting theory. I hated, I hated Christopher Lee's Dracula. Yeah. And it seems like he hated it too. <laughs> I am so mystified by that, by that movement. And the fact that he he was drawn back seven times. And and you can tell, I yeah. think in the last three Dracula movies that he did, he's on screen for like four minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it absolutely infuriated him that that decades later, if you stopped on the street, somebody was going to, was going to mention Dracula. It was sure as shooting, somebody was going to do it. Apparently, he went to his grave a happy man because that phenomenon changed <laughs> at the very end of his life. If somebody stopped him on the sidewalk, it was Saruman. Something that he that he wanted to be true. He was a grand old man on the set consulting with Jackson's script doctors because he knew the Lord of the Rings backwards and forwards. And when it was all over and he was back from wherever they filmed and he was on the streets of London, people would say, hey, it's Saruman. Finally, you could be happy. I agree with you. It's a terrible thing. What what Lee should have done, <laughs> easy to say in our position, but what he should have done is say no. Your you and your studio is what your studio is, and your money is what your money is, and you want me to reprise my role of Dracula, but I want you to find somebody else unless you give me better script than this. Because the, all of those things might be true, but the main thing is I'm Christopher Lee, and I don't want to do it unless it's better, unless it's worth me. And he didn't do that <laughs> he should have <laughs> he should have done that <laughs> i might have i have no patience whatsoever for uh what's his name uh ray fines i have no patience whatsoever for people like him or daniel day lewis for actors like them that you know I, the they, do, they do the acting equivalent of bleeding on the keys i have no patience for that whatsoever but at least it means you're never going to see them do a role they don't believe in True. Rod Steiger was like that. Yeah, almost went to blows with Sergio Leone because Sergio Leone wanted to dub uh, "Duck You Sucker," and Rod Steiger was like, "I can't, I can't recapture the performance in the recording room, so you have to capture my audio on set." Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's one of the only things that I tend to like about. I, I just when I watch, what did you say? It was method acting. That's probably what it yeah. is, right? Yeah. When when I watch something like that, I just have to forget how the sausages are made and just enjoy the end result. And usually I do. Usually I do. I thought I thought, uh, for instance, Ray Fiennes in Red Dragon was really really good. Really captured something that isn't. It doesn't come out as strongly in the book, 
the, the idea that Dollarhide might want to stop, that he might be agonized by what he's doing. I thought that came across pretty well. well maybe because I saw the movie before I read the book. I, I mean, I hadn't oh, seen yeah. the movie in years. In the book, it, it's in the book. It's it's a, an impression that lags behind on the page, very much lags behind. In the movie, by the time Dollarhide eats the Blake painting and right. and clubs the woman unconscious, in the movie, by the time he does that, already been long established, long hypothesized that he might be trying to stop. In the book. That's the first time that we really, in the book, the, the thing that he's trying to do is not necessarily stop killing people, but that he's trying to love someone other than his mother. But not that he's trying to stop being a monster, that he's, that he's trying to stop killing people. At least the, that's my impression as, as a reader and a viewer, that that comes across much more immediately and viscerally in the movie than it does in the book. At least I'm... Am, am I I'm guessing that you hated Daniel Day Lewis as Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Not because I, I most of his decisions I love. Being a real person, being a, a non statuary, non statuesque person, that sort of thing. It's just the, the weird uh, mannerisms. I, I guess I should say I didn't hate his performance, but it was the weird mannerisms that he had all throughout that he just decided to give himself all throughout the movie. A weird accent, first of all, but also lots of weird, just weird ways of talking that, that I, I mean, we don't want, we don't know. Did he not have the high-pitched voice? No, we're told that he had a, a, a sandpapery, raspy voice, but not necessarily uh. high-pitched and querulous. His, his Lincoln is high-pitched and querulous the whole time. He sounds, yeah, sounds older, sounds elderly. Right, or... Or maybe like a woman in disguise, <laughs> like a woman in disguise. In a couple of the cabinet scenes in Lincoln, I kept I kept hearing John Cleese in my mind from Life of Brian saying, "Are there any women here?" <laughs> because all the rest of them sounded like men except for him. He didn't. I keep hearing that line. And there goes another episode. I don't know if you can hear the squeaking of my chair. I just ordered a new one um, off of um, Office Depot. And it was like, I, partly that's to do with a, another conversation that I recorded with Steve that you'll hear in, I guess, a week or so, week, maybe two weeks. But um, I was telling him about how I kind of fetishize photos of workspaces. Fortunately, throughout the 20th century, there there's a robust supply of photography of like, writers working areas their desks their chairs their bookshelves and um i've been thinking about it a lot lately because due to the pandemic i've been staying home and i've been sitting at my desk for hours and hours every day recording the podcast editing them writing um oftentimes just reading uh because if my roommate is out on the couch and this chair that i'm sitting on is super squeaky and extremely uncomfortable so i finally shelled out i think 250 dollars for um, a desk chair that should be coming in a few days. And I'm, my idea is that like, okay, once I get this desk chair, I'm going to sit for even better, more productive marathon sessions at my desk. Probably not a good approach, but yeah, so I have that to look forward to. And my desk like wobbles. It's, it's nice and it works, but it's an Ikea thing. So this, I, that's, that's going to be my next thing is like upgrade the desk.
I'm super grateful that Steve is willing to participate in these conversations, and I, I only regret that it takes me so long to edit them. Because this one, uh, what you're listening to was, I think, I think this final recording is like 90 minutes, but our actual conversation was like three and a half hours, and we recorded it on May third. So it took me over two weeks to edit it, you know, intermittently along with writing a monologue and working on other episodes that are like the episode that came before this and the episode that's coming after this. But one of the things that's exciting, and I think if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, you can see it firsthand, is that Steve kind of attracted like a huge chunk of his audience over here. And um, so I'm very grateful for that. If you're one of the people who only watches Steve on YouTube and you're not familiar with my podcast, thank you for coming all the way over here and listening to the very bitter end. But as a result of that, so I'm looking at the numbers and there are like 10 times as many listeners to the conversations with Steve than there are to my normal episodes. And so I feel kind of bad about, you know, putting an entire episode's worth of content in front of the conversation with Steve, so I tried to truncate it, but then there was a part of me that's like, oh wait, you've got all these people coming to the to come into the show. Maybe I should, you know, try to put my best foot forward in the very beginning and they could always just skip it, I guess. But so apart from the rigors of just trying to truncate that very long conversation into a more bite-sized package that still retains all the interesting bits, there's a kind of new bit of anxiety here where it's like, how do I like truncate the conversation so that it's interesting to my base audience, which is unfamiliar with Steve and maybe isn't willing to just sort of surrender themselves to a three-hour conversation, while at the same time making my introduction interesting to the people who are only here to listen to Steve because they've been listening to him for years and years and thousands of videos. Probably, I probably made it into more of a headache than it needed to be. But another thing I wanted to mention here in the conclusion is that one of one of the most de like devout and supportive followers of Thousand Movie Project since the very beginning has been my friend Elisa. And it turns out that one of Elisa's professors is is sort of a distant acquaintance of mine, like two degrees removed. His name is Lucas Blanco. He's a, he's a terrific artist. And for the time being, he is making bookmarks and selling them. And they're very artful. They're good material. He takes good care of them. And they are for sale on his website, lucasblanco.com. And he is donating all of the proceeds from those bookmarks to um, getting personal protective equipment for healthcare workers during the time of the pandemic. I think all he's hanging on to is like the price of postage. But other than that, if you want to donate to um, medical workers who need protective equipment, but you'd also like a nice bookmark along the way, I suggest you go to lucasblanco.com. That's L-U-C-A-S-B-L-A-N-C-O.com. And you can find some good stuff there. If you're new to the show, if you were drawn here by Steve Donahue's uh, YouTube channel and you like what you heard, I hope you're willing to poke around in some of the back episodes. Avoid the first 30, which are the ones that I, 30 odd episodes, which I recorded when I really had no idea what I was doing. I would say it's safe to go back like, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 20 episodes. Anyways, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>